everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 114. My name is Jo McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Joel Canderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Rihanna Root Lissandro, who talked about her role as an oncology dietitian. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest, Isla Veal, who'll be discussing her role as an oncology physiotherapist. Welcome, Isla. Thank you for joining us. So, Isla, introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about you. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for having me. It's a real milestone for me to have my first podcast, um, and I really appreciate you having me on as a guest. Um, I am, I'm an oncology physio. I'm a cancer physio, it's the same same title. Um, I am part of a larger team. I've just one mere cog in a wheel, um, and I wouldn't be here presenting the work today without the support and care from my boss, um, Nick Pete, and also Gareth Jones at Guys in St. Thomas's. So I'm very thankful to have them and have their support. But I can tell you a little bit about myself now. Um, so I qualified as a physio back in the early 2000s. And like many baby physios, I joined at a general hospital and I worked in lots of different areas like stroke, intensive care. Um, and I also worked in people's homes and the, as part of the community. And I wasn't sure then where I wanted to specialize or where I wanted to work. Uh, but one of the workplaces was a hospice. And I didn't really know what a hospice was. And I remember clearly on my first day wondering what in the world my role was and what I was going to be doing there. And I remember very clearly asking and receiving the answers. But over time, I very quickly realized the invaluable position that I had as a cancer video in the hospice, working in symptom management um, and helping people to realize their goals. Um, one of my best memories that I will never forget is the gentleman who came to us with spinal cord compression. And he said he wanted to walk again. He had no movement, he had no sensation from his hip down. But so it was a little bit of an ask, but I was a young and inexperienced physio. And I thought, you know what, let's just give this a try and see how far we get. So alongside the medical intervention he received and the rehab we provided, he did actually regain enough ability to be able to walk a couple of meters holding on to the gym bars. And it was such an amazing moment for our team. And then a few days later, he died. And, and while that is sad, it was also a ex, uh, real success story because he achieved his goal. Um, and it was because of these many fulfilling memories that I had that I thought, you know what, I want to work in this area of cancer. Um, so I made up my mind, I'd apply for the first job that I had um, that offered cancer as a specialty. So that's how I got to the cancer, to the doors of cancer world. Oh, Isla, that's a really touching story. And I can definitely kind of sense why you're passionate about what you do. I always think sometimes there's those defining moments as an early healthcare practitioner where you've made a real difference to someone's life that stick with you throughout your career, really, to kind of solidify why you do what you do. Um, what made you want to be a physio in the first place? You know, where, oh. what, what made you decide that that is the healthcare professional for you and not occupational therapy or you know, speech and language therapy. Yeah, of course, of course. So I and I think it's true, you um, are sort of drawn to careers that you find out about maybe as a young age, or maybe um, experienced through your family, your parents. Um, and if for me, it was through my parents. Um, so I got to see um, when my dad was unwell, when I was a young child, I got to see him working with the physios, and they taught him how to walk again. 
And I remember just acknowledging it and thinking, wow, that's really amazing. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later, I remember lying in my bed and deciding at the tender age of 14 what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I remember thinking, well, what, you know, what is it I enjoyed about my life? What is it I really valued? Um, and I, that memory of them helping my dad learn to walk again made me think, actually, that's something that I could do. Um, and from then on, that's been my goal in my life is to, to be a physio. I am by nature a physio. I love that. And I would also say, Isla, that I too thought I was going to be a physio <laughs> until I fainted my first day in uh, in my degree of being a physio. I was never destined to be a physio. Um, but one thing that you've highlighted really clearly and articulately is around the different disciplines within physiotherapy, because I do see um, working in admissions that we get lots of 18 year olds who are, you know, really want to be a physio, but largely because they want to work with musculoskeletal, you know, within the sports industry. Isla, how how vastly different is being a physio to that ideology of being that physio that runs onto a football pitch and massages legs and arms and things like that? <laughs> I do think there are two very distinct types of physios and you do have those who love to work in musculoskeletal who love the sports environment and then you have those who don't necessarily enjoy that environment and we have very we obviously have the same degree we obviously have the same understanding the same education um, but you know we, we have different mindsets um, and one of one of the fun days um, during the year is around Christmas time when um, the outpatients is shut down and all the outpatient staff have to come onto the ward to help support the ward staff and these poor musculoskeletal physios you know are terrified or you know, when they're looking at the ward environments because it's such a different environment to work in um, with the smells the noise you know the equipment that's around the hoist and and yes it's the same skills but it's just just so so very very different um, and I've worked on the wards I've worked in the hospice and now I'm working um, in an outpatient environment which obviously has some similarities maybe to the sports outpatient environment but um, it also you know many very differences but you know we definitely use those, the same skills across all of those different areas. Does every oncology patient get access to a physio? So the the answer should be yes they should. Um, we have a very wide range of um, skills that we use with people with cancer. Um, and it depends on really what we're trying to achieve. And we might be trying to achieve lots of different things um, with our patients. Um, there's a, a model of rehab called the Dietz model um, from 1980. And yes, it is old, but it still holds true today about what we're trying to achieve. So we might have preventative aims um, with helping a patient. We're trying to reduce the loss of muscle strength, reduce the loss of bone strength, loss of function. Um, or we might be doing a restorative um, aim. So it might be that someone's had, you know, surgery and that we need to restore them to their full function to help them getting back to being with their family, to returning to the world work environment. It might be that we've got supportive aims at that time. So we're trying to help them with their symptom burden, helping them to be as independent um, as they can. Um, and it also, we might have palliative aims. You know, we're looking maybe perhaps in advanced disease and we're looking at, you know, how the work we were doing in the hospice of helping them to achieve what their, their goals are. And we might be doing all of those roles on, at, at similar times. They might be overlapping. 
Um, but that's, you know, that's the way we will, would work in the ward environment, in the hospice or, um, or in outpatients. But so, yes, we have a lot of different roles um, for patients with cancer. There's been lots of media attention around exercise specifically for cancer patients. Um, and when sometimes we refer to exercise, you see patients going wide eyed thinking, I can't run. Um, you know, what what should we be suggesting, maybe not as a physiotherapist, but as an allied health professional or as a clinical nurse specialist or even as a, an oncologist? What should we be um, advising our patients around physical activity without necessarily having the knowledge and skills that a physiotherapist would have? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you brought this up because physical activity and exercise is an, an area very close to my heart. Um, and the reason it is so exceptionally important is because in the last decade, there has been a lot of evidence to support the role of physical activity and exercise. We know in some of the many major tumor groups like breast, prostate and colorectal that there's a relationship with being active and having better cancer outcomes, a reduced risk of dying from cancer, a reduced risk of dying from any other cause, and a reduced risk of the cancer spreading. So fantastic cancer um, outcomes that can be really real and really um, helpful for a patient. Um, and also being active also reduces the risk of developing um, other future cancers or any other primaries, and also reduces the risk of developing other cancer treatments like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or obesity. And those can be related to having cancer treatment. Um, and additionally, there's benefits um, and the strong evidence to show that we can tackle some of the common treatment side effects like fatigue, anxiety, and depression, and we can improve a patient's quality of life. But regardless of all that evidence that's out there, we know that probably only 20% of people with a cancer diagnosis are meeting exercise recommendations. And one could argue that that's because it's quite subjective. That probably is an overestimation of how much people are actually doing. And so we have this really difficult situation where we know that physical activity and exercise is good, but we know full well that it's not happening. And there's lots of different reasons for that. And one of the other reasons why physical activity and, and, and exercise is really important in cancer is that a lot of the cancer treatments that we deliver, our hormone therapy, our radiotherapy, our chemo, our surgery, has a lot of really negative impacts on the body. Yes, it's very good for treating cancer, but it's got these negative side effects. Fatigue is obviously a really common one. And using physical activity and exercise, we can help to reduce fatigue, we can help to manage fatigue so that patients can carry on living their life, continue um, maintaining their strength or improving their strength so that they are able to have more cancer treatment as required in the future. I think one of the saddest situations I've seen was I was sitting in clinic, so as part of my master's dissertation, where I was looking at how physical activity and exercise is delivered to patients by clinicians. And there was a gentleman in front of us who had been fit and active prior to having his cancer diagnosis. And then once he was diagnosed, he started to receive his treatment. And one of the key issues for him was fatigue. And the fatigue was so severe that he was spending most of his day sitting in, in his chair or lying in his bed. And the doctor said to him, how much time are you spending being sedentary? How much time are you spending um, in your chair or in your bed? And he's like, you know, most of the day. 
And because of his response, the doctor said, okay, I'm going to have to um, put your treatment on hold. We're going to have to put it to the side until you can recover from your fatigue. But at no point did they say to that patient, you know, if you were physically active, we could help you not get to this stage of fatigue and we can help you now even with your fatigue so that you can be strong enough to have the next line of cancer treatment. And it's just heartbreaking that we're giving treatments that we know have side effects and the evidence shows we'll benefit from being physically active and doing exercise, but we're not sharing that as healthcare professionals. Um, and that for me is, is, really, is really heartbreaking. There's lots of reasons why healthcare professionals don't share information about exercise and physical activity. And part of it is they don't know what to say. They don't know what the recommendations are themselves. They may not be exercising themselves. They may not be confident to share their experience or the benefits that they have themselves of being active. And so they don't talk about it when patients might bring it up. They may not know the services to refer to. They might not know the answers. And, and if someone said to them, you know, can I go swimming with a pick line? Um, can I go swimming? I've just had radiotherapy and, you know, and my skin's a bit sensitive. They might not know the practical answers. And so the answers are not given to patients. And so patients go away thinking, maybe I shouldn't do anything. Or they might be given incorrect information. And I've definitely heard this from healthcare professionals where they'll say, take it easy, relax, mind how you go, see how you get on with the symptoms. And so that it's not correct, it's not supportive, and it's discouraging patients from being active. And one of the reasons why we're, we're, we tend to give this kind of information is because for decades, we have told patients not to exercise. We have told them to sit, you've got cancer, to be careful. And so many of us have been through our education, understanding that that was the recent information and the up-to-date information. But things have changed in the last decade, and I don't think we've kept up with the um, evidence base and we've not been sharing it with our patients. So to answer your question, Joe, what we should be telling our patients is to move more, to sit less, and to aim for exercise recommendations, which for everyone who's listening is 30 minutes a day, five days a week of anything that makes us feel slightly out of breath, increases our heart rate, and maybe so that we could still hold a conversation, but we can't sing a song. So that's the aerobic side of things. But in addition to that, we also need to be thinking about doing strength training at least twice a week on alternate days to give our muscles a little bit time to relax and recover. Um, and if we're over 65, we also need to be thinking about doing um, exercises to challenge our, challenge our balance. Because if we don't use it, we lose it. So those are the, the recommendations. And if it's a difficult situation, if it's a patient who... You know, they might have a pick line or the stoma or, you know, a peripheral neuropathy, or they might be at risk of falls. These are all very good reasons for us to be referring to a physio, to a cancer physio, to say, help us manage these symptoms, help us to be active despite um, any of these challenges that we face. Really good advice. Isla, I'm intrigued. What's the science behind the link between? physical activity and fatigue so you know in terms of how how does it help because you know a lot of people would think oh I feel tired and the first thing that comes out of anyone's mouth is oh just go go and have a nap or just relax just sit down be sedentary 
But what is it about physical activity that actually helps manage that fatigue? So fatigue is a really complex um, phenomenon, and we don't know what causes fatigue necessarily. We, we know there's lots of different um, things that can cause it, psychological, mental, cognitive, and physical, but it's very difficult to say exactly and pinpoint exactly what causes it. We do know, though, that if we're tired, we want to rest, and we should feel better. That's normal fatigue. But we're talking about something very different right now, and that's cancer-related fatigue. So with normal fatigue, you rest and you feel better. But with cancer-related fatigue, we rest and we don't feel better. So we then say, okay, well, I'll rest a little bit more. Clearly, I need a little bit more rest. So we rest maybe a few more days, maybe a few more weeks, and we don't feel any better. But what's happened over those weeks is that we've lost strength. We've lost fitness. We've lost confidence, we've lost balance, we've lost bone strength, we've lost all of the physical components that give us the ability to be active, to be strong. So it's a real significant deconditioning cycle. So the only way to break that deconditioning cycle is to go the opposite way. We need to do graded exercise, graded physical activity, where we might look at our our energy levels and say, um, okay, I'm, I'm feeling great today. Well, rather than doing 110% and then for the next three weeks lying in bed because we're absolutely exhausted, we need to say, you know what, I'm just going to do 80% of what I want to achieve today. And when we're having a bad day, rather than do 0% and lie in bed, we should say, you know what, I'm just going to do 40%. I'm going to try and do something. And and then over time, as we maintain our physical activity and our exercise levels, we can start to see our energy levels um, either maintain or increase over time. The three P's, planning, pacing, prioritizing. I remember easier said than done. I think even as healthcare professionals, it's very hard for us to try and follow that advice. I think touching on what you said about the confidence with exercise, I think we've talked about this quite a few times in previous episodes, but lots of students, healthcare professionals, or even carers for people living with and beyond cancer, they're not confident in talking about exercise or physical activity because they don't feel they do enough. But obviously, like if you do the hoovering, that's exercise, go up and down the stairs, do some cooking, pick up a child, whatever, all of that counts. So all of these things count towards our recommendations. And there's a lot of, you know, what is physical activity? What is exercise? The good thing is they both count towards meeting the exercise recommendations. So yes, like heavy gardening counts. It's digging in the lawn, your counts, you know, um, hoovering, um, doing things where we just get that heart rate up. And the really nice thing about using something like heart rate or getting your breathing up is that you yourself can feel it. You can sense it without any technology. You don't need anybody next to you with a heart rate monitor to say you're working at the right level. You can tell it yourself just by, you know, simple task. And then you can see how hard you're working. And that rule can be applied to someone who's not very fit, someone who gets out of breath doing one flight of stairs. 
And you can also use that same rule to somebody who can run up 20 flights of stairs and only then is just slightly breathless. So it's a really nice measure. And if it's one thing that I ask people to take away with is to think about themselves, about what they can count towards their 30 minutes a day, five days a week. What is it that gets them slightly out of breath where they can talk but not sing a song and gets that heart rate up just that little bit more? Because once you start to identify what those activities are, what those tasks are, then you can add it up in your head and say, well, actually, you know, I hoovered the house the other day. I went boxing the other day. I ran for the bus the other day. And you can start to add it up. And if 30 minutes is too much, if your fitness level isn't good enough to do 30 minutes in one go, and let's face it, we know full well there's a lot of people, especially those who are going through cancer treatment, where that would not be tolerable. You can break it down. You can do five minutes in one go. You can do 10 minutes in one go and gradually build yourself up so you can reach those 30 minutes. So it's something, it's a message that can be delivered to lots of different levels of ability, lots of different levels of function. So Isla, what is strength training and what exercises come within it? So strength training is exceptionally important um, for so many of our patients. So again, it's a little bit like balance. If you don't use it, you lose it. Um, and I think we as a nation, I think perhaps we've become a lot more sedentary, um, especially probably since COVID. And we're not using our muscles. We're not using our bones. But nor are we then realizing how weak we are becoming um, as a nation. And the same applies to our patients with cancer. They might be sitting quite a lot because of the cancer treatment they're receiving. I mean, if you look at sedentary um, le levels for an average person, we spend seven hours of our day being sedentary. If you look at somebody with cancer, you can easily bump that up to 10 hours. That's not hard to believe because you can think about the amount of time you spend traveling, waiting in hospital appointments, sitting and having your chemo, waiting for things, basically. So it's really easy to see how you can lose strength. Add on to that the treatments that so many of our patients are on. If you're thinking about the hormone therapy, and while that's amazing for treating cancer, it has really negative effects on your muscle strength, on your bone strength encourages you to put on weight. And so many of our patients don't see that until they start to realize that actually the trousers don't fit anymore. Actually, it's a real effort to climb a flight of stairs. And actually, they've had a fall and now they realize that they had osteoporosis. So these are all things that we can help counteract by doing strength training. So strength training, we should be doing it twice a week on alternate days of all the major muscle groups. So we're thinking of your arms, your backs, your legs, your bottom, your tummies. And we should be looking, you can do them through um, sort of structured exercise. So you might be thinking about doing a specific exercise, anything which you might find quite challenging. So a typical thing, so you might think of bicep curls, you know, bending and straightening your arms. And maybe you'd like to add some resistance to that. So maybe you've got some, some weight, maybe you've got dumbbells at home, maybe you've got, I don't know, something like a doorstop or bottles of water or bags of flour, anything that you can hold in your arm that provides that level of resistance. And then once you've done 10, pick a quick rest do 10 more and then if you're up for it do 10 more so we're looking for like three sets of 10 exercises for each of your um, uh, muscle groups 
So it's really important to challenge your muscles and challenge your bones so that we can maintain and build your strength again. It's easy to do it through exercises, and there's lots of um, exercise videos um, that you can see um, on the internet, on the NHS website. I know the Marsden have some um, exercise videos. We will be having some coming out very soon on this um, Southeast uh, London Cancer Alliance website. So there's lots of videos that you can follow along. It also makes me think of Joe Wicks. So it's really engaging and just a really easy way um, of covering all your major muscle groups in, a, in an exercise video. But also, we can also think about other ways of um, strengthening yourself without uh, weight. So your own body weight, standing up and sitting down as many times as you can or doing it really, really slowly is an amazing way of challenging your bottom muscles, your quads on your thighs, your hamstrings on the back of your thighs. Um, and that's just using your body weight with no equipment. If I was a bit mean, I'd have us do it right now, but we're not going to. <laughs> but it's a it's a great way. And other things we can do, like press-ups or squats, using the stairs. You can think of gardening. So again, we're going back to heavy gardening. There's lots of ways, carrying heavy shopping, there's lots of ways we can still challenge our bones and our muscles um, regularly so that we're getting the benefits um, of activity and exercise. Can I ask about prehabilitation? So, you know, when patients are maybe going through a diagnostic pathway, exercise and physical activity may not necessarily feature in their everyday thought, but why should it and why should we engage with prehabilitation? And for anyone working maybe earlier on in the oncology pathway, why is it so essential that the advice that they're giving to people when they're going for CT scans, MRI scans, you know, their chest X-ray, why should our diagnostic colleagues be offering all of this public health advice for patients? Nice. So, yeah, so physical activity and exercise is one part of prehabilitation. But I should also emphasize that we're only one member of the team. And we also need to be thinking about the dietitians as well and psychology, smoking cessation and alcohol. And as part of a, a team, you can help to support the patient to be as strong as they can, as fit as they can mentally and physically to help them to be able to tolerate the treatment that they're facing. Prehab, I think, is a bit of a sticky word for me because it kind of suggests to the hearer that you're talking about something before treatment. So that kind of suggests it's a one-off, which, well, if you go and have surgery, well, you need prehab before the surgery, but then you're going to have, maybe you're going to have chemo after that surgery. Well, then really, you should be having prehabilitation again, shouldn't you, before that chemotherapy? And maybe you're going to have hormone therapy after that. So again, we could be having three periods of prehabilitation. But then when does prehabilitation become rehabilitation? Because the treatment side effects, you're going to have some symptom burden or maybe, you know, a reduction in your function. That means that you need rehabilitation. So prehab, fantastic. Rehab, fantastic. We need both of them. They were overlap. Like I mentioned with the Dietz model, we as therapists use the different concepts as, in, as we need them, um, regardless of where they are in the pathway. If we now think about, we'll go back to just physical activity and exercise, many people would say diagnosis is fantastic to talk about physical activity and exercise because it's a teachable moment when people are ready to make lifestyle changes. And for many, yes, that is true. 
um, having looked at the work and you know spoken to many um, nurses and and physios this last year, I can tell you that very few of our patients are told about physical activity and exercise at diagnosis. And yes, I would agree that it is a teachable moment, but it's not the only moment because as you say, you know, a lot of our patients are receiving a lot of information at that time. And for some, that that won't be the time for them. But we need to talk about physical activity and exercise throughout their entire cancer journey. Because at another point in their journey, they might be say, actually, I now feel like I can partake in this, I can participate um, in this area, I can think about it. I've got the headspace to think about it. And also, we know that as somebody goes through their cancer journey, their ability to be physically active is not linear. We know that it will rise and fall according to the treatment side effects, whether they've had surgery, whether they're you know at the height of their radiotherapy side effects. So we know that patients need support all the way along the journey. And so at some points, yes, they might need to see a specialist physio. At other points, actually, they can go to their local gym and receive support from somebody who's an exercise specialist and has some cancer uh, rehab training. Or actually, they're good enough. They just need a little bit of help and direction to go to one of their local exercise classes. So we know the support that they need changes over time. And that's why we need to constantly ask them about how they're getting on. How are they meeting exercise recommendations? Do they need any help? Are the treatment side effects getting in the way? And is there anything we as any healthcare professional can do to support them or to refer them to another team that can provide the support that they require? Hila, what happens if a department doesn't have a you? So physical, the message that we're looking for is physical activity and exercise. We should be able to refer to physio in order to provide that level of support. I understand that um, a lot of teams don't have uh, cancer physios. Um, we should be able to provide some resources which are out there for them. So we, as, as, as healthcare professionals, we should be able to link our patients with what, whatever the available resources are. And we will be able to publish some on the podcast that you'll be able to see, um, have access to. Isla, I believe you are a 5K Your Way ambassador. Um, I, I would suggest that also people might want to promote that charity for, for patients as a way to kind of get some peer support and also engage in some physical activity. Yeah, there's a lot of fantastic resources out there. Yes, 5K Your Way is brilliant. Um, I might take a step back, actually, before we even talk about 5K Your Way and bring it back to the level of those who would like to get moving, but maybe might consider themselves couch potatoes. So I would recommend apps out there like five. Um, sorry, guys. Just forgotten my name on my apps. Couch to 5K. <laughs> So I would recommend the apps that are out there out there like Couch to 5K because they're a fantastic way of getting you started, maybe just with a little bit of walking. And then it tells you you can take it to the next level and go walk a little bit faster. And you all you have to do is follow the instructions. And it's a 12-week program, and it just gradually increases the amount that you're doing every week. And if you're having a terrible week, maybe the symptoms are worse that week, you can always take it a step back and just repeat the week before. So it's just a really nice way to rate your progress and take what can be quite challenging, that of a 5K run, and bring it down to something which is a little bit more bite-sized, which is easier to manage. And another app I'd recommend um, for everybody, not any, not just people with cancer, and that's Active10, because it's a very simple act, but app, but it gives you an idea of how much activity you're doing 
which would reach the level of moderate activity. So we as healthcare professionals are terrible in saying things like, I'm on my feet all day. Of course, I'm active. Of course, I'm physically active. But in reality, if you looked back at how much counts as a moderate level, you know, feel slightly out of breath where you can talk but not sing a song, it's often we're not doing very much of it and we're certainly not doing 30 minutes worth of it. So definitely recommend those two um, types of apps. And then once you're getting up to your levels where you think, you know, I'm ready to be out, I'm ready to walk 5K, I'm ready to run 5K, then you can definitely go along, please, to your local uh, 5K your way. And you can be a supporter. You can be a participant. You can be there to be part of the group. It happens on the last Saturday of every month in certain areas across the UK. So I highly recommend that you go onto the website and see if there's an area near you. And if there isn't one near you, and I have to say in London, there are not many near us. Um, I'd recommend that you know contact the team and say, say if you'd like to become an ambassador, say if you'd like to participate, and perhaps there'll be enough support so that we can create more local groups and create that support that is so desperately needed. While I'm on the, the idea of apps, um, there's many other apps are available out there. Um, I'm thinking of exercise video apps again. So again, Couch to Fitness. Um, I know um, lots of other companies also run their own, lots of sports companies run their own apps. And they're just trying to make it as easy as possible for you to say, I've got 15 minutes, what can I do right now? And then rather than strolling through, through YouTube for the next 15 minutes, desperately looking for something you're interested in, you can very easily find something which is 10 minutes long, 15 minutes long, and you can say, I'm just going to do this video. I've easily found it on my app. And voila, you've already done a little bit of your physical activity for the day. Isla, there's some work that you've been involved with, um, your team and beyond around stratifying risk. Could you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So many years ago, um, we when we were first trying to start tackling the issue of physical activity and exercise and really embedding it as part of cancer care, we wanted to see what was support was required by our patients, see what support was available. And really at that stage, it wasn't really very much available in our trust. So we looked at what the evidence base was for people with cancer. We, so we did a literature review. We gathered uh, clinical opinions in a round table, and we tried to determine what was important and what level of support was required for patients according to their many different presentations. And it's not just a cancer diagnosis. It's not just treatment side effects. They come with a whole past medical history, as you would expect anybody to. So we needed to be able to say, if this person presents like this, if there is significant falls risk, if they've got a PICC line, if they've got severe peripheral neuropathy, they'll need this type of support. So we also, once we created a risk stratification tool, we wanted to make sure that it was easy to use. So it's in a nice flow chart so that any healthcare professional can look at their patient in front of them and say, I can see actually that you probably require some specialist support here. Actually, I can see that you're going to be fine in a gym environment with someone with level four cancer rehab training. You're going to be supported well enough there. Or um, actually, you might just need some resources and maybe some of the apps that I've just mentioned here, you're going to be okay um, here. Having said all this, obviously, we know patients, as I mentioned earlier, always change. So just because we stratify them one place does not mean that that's where they'll always end up. 
as their needs change, then they need to be reassessed. Again, bringing back the point that we should always be talking about physical activity and exercise and always assessing, um, especially, you know, along the lines of every contact counts, there should be something that we should always be looking at if the person's in the right place in order to do the exercise and physical activity that they need. But once once we created this risk stratification tool, we also then had to create the levels of support, the, the, the resources for them. So through that, we created um, exercise classes, which have been virtual, have been face-to-face. Um, we've got teams of physiotherapists and exercise specialists um, based in the hospital where we can provide that level of care that's necessary. We also did a lot of work with our um, boroughs and said, you know, you guys are already providing exercise on referral. Would you be happy to accept our patients? And they quite rightly said, we've we've not been trained in cancer. We don't know how to manage their cancer treatment side effects. We wouldn't know what to do. So because of that, um, we had some funding through Macmillan Cancer Care, and we were able to provide level four cancer rehab for the leisure providers so that they would have the training and the confidence to be able to manage the patients. So we needed to create the support. We need to create the support network. And also we've also created a physical activity phone pathway so that patients would receive that follow-up support for over up to a year so that as their as their needs changed, as their support requirements changed, we would able to be able to help them move them to the area that they needed to be at that time. When is it going to be available, Isla? So it is available. It is out there, but we do need to publish it and we do understand that. Thanks for the hint. No no pressure. No pressure. When it is published, Isla, let us know and we will definitely share it across social media. So anyone listening to this episode who thinks that sounds like something I need to learn about, know about, get my teeth into, then absolutely we'll share it. Um, So Isla, we're we're coming to the end of the podcast episode and we always finish with top tips. So I think you've given quite a few to to patients. Um, I just wonder if there's anything from a healthcare education perspective that, you know, if you've got healthcare practitioners listening, you've got students listening, what do they need to take away from this episode? How can they better support patients so that they have better outcomes, better quality of life? Um, and also just in terms of their overall health and and supporting their health long term with maybe other comorbidities. Yeah. So my number one piece of advice um, to anyone who's listening is please be active, be physically active yourself. Please aim to meet exercise recommendations. As we said, 30 minutes a day, five days a week, plus strength training. And the reason I want to say that is because we as a society need to be more physically active so we can reduce the number of primary cancers that are going to be coming up in our future. And also, if we are unfortunate to be diagnosed with cancer, which one in two of us will be, we need to be physically strong enough to be able to deal with it ourselves and to improve our cancer outcomes and improve our own quality of life. The other benefit of this is the more active we are, the more confident, the more comfortable we are to talk about it with our patients. And therefore, we will be able to provide better care for them because we ourselves are better. And so I just ask as my final point is please feel happy to talk about physical activity and exercise to anybody with cancer. Encourage them to move more and to sit less and help, you know, encourage them and support them to get the services that they need and support that they need to be active. No, oh, thank you so much, Isla. So many 
good pieces of advice and you know irrespective of disability you know physical activity levels I think there is something for everyone isn't there so I think it's important that people appreciate that there's there is personalization um from all everything that potentially people can get to do so thank you so very much so thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and Namanjelka Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Barbara Wilson. He'll be discussing her experience of breast cancer along with the organisation Working With Cancer that she founded. So thank you all for listening and take care. Thank you.